hopefully finish that up today, Lord willing. Um, but I did put the third commandment out there so that if you wanted to read between now and next week, you could. Uh, so we're still mainly in the second commandment. And I did put out a few copies of the second one just so that you could, uh, if you didn't bring your copy today and you needed one, there's a, there's a couple of that second commandment that's there. Uh, as far as I know, I don't really have anything serious. I think that I just have allergies. Sometimes hard to tell between a cold and allergies, but um, so that's a, just a little bit of stuffiness and runniness. So, But I, other than uh, a little bit of sniffles and a little bit of cloudiness, I think I'm, I think I'm thinking okay. So, <laughs> yeah. Let me go ahead and pray for us. Lord God, as we study the Ten Commandments, help us to remember that you have a right to tell us how to live, that you are our Lord, our covenant Lord, and that it is really to our happiness that you would direct us and help us to learn to submit to you and by your Holy Spirit and help us to uh, have eyes to see the beauty of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I'm going to start us out and try to move relatively quickly um, through things that I think are uh, need saying, but not necessarily um, hugely controversial. So, and then we'll we'll deal with uh, some things that are a little bit more uh, disputed. So we're in the second commandment. We're on question 108. We looked last week at prayer, and particularly we looked at singing. By the way, if anybody wants more information, I found this uh, book that I've, I got from Olin Coleman, previous elder uh, on Reformation and Revival. It was printed in 1995, and it has a, the whole uh, little booklet is on singing. So lots of really cool um, chapters in here. Uh, I don't really even recognize many of the names except for Robert Godfrey. Um, but I'm sure it's very stimulating and thought-provoking if anybody would like to, to look at that. You can borrow that for a little while. Um, but we're not going to stick on with singing, even though we could debate that for weeks. We're going to just go into the Word right now. And the confession, or the catechism question says that it is, it is uh, mandatory, the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of the Word. That's the three statements that it makes. Uh, I'm just going to make a comment about the reading of the word. Uh, yeah, I, I said, question 108, um, yeah, keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances, and then you had prayer and thanksgiving, and then you had the reading, preaching, and hearing the word. Yep, so, um, uh, of course, in Reformed thinking, we, we place a high value on the preaching of the word. But why do we put a, a value on the reading of the word? You, you, you should not come to one of our services and not have a portion of the scripture read. Now, it, uh, in my Lutheran church growing up, we would have an Old Testament reading, a gospel reading, and a New Testament, an epistle reading. Like you'd have all three every time. And I think there's wisdom in that, but we, we have not done that. We usually have some passage of Scripture that in some way uh, is tangentially related to the, to the preached Word, and that's just another philosophy. But why is the reading of the Word so important? What do you think? Why is it important that we, you know, we preach it, why do we need to read it? Oh, okay, so the reading is to know Him better, but Why? No. Right, so that's a big thing. So the preaching really is this mixture. It is God speaking through the preaching, but it really are, there's more thoughts going on in the preaching than just the word of God. And so it's easy to get things wrong in the preaching of the word. And so you want to have something that we call unadulterated, that is just pure and simple, this is God's word to you. 
The Reformers believed that the whole reason why the Catholic Church was able to do what it did in terms of moving us away from the true gospel was because they no longer read the word to the people in their own language. And so they could just say, hey, let us tell you what it says. And they wanted to stay away from that. So... That's exactly right. Yep. They were applauded for examining the scriptures to say, is what I'm saying in alignment with the scriptures? And so, excellent. Throughout the week, yes, yes. Um, you guys get the gist of it. So, and I, I had Dr. Kick, my preaching professor, give us a book that was a, a whole book that was totally on how to read the Bible. And he said, I'll, I'll never forget this. I think Danny, he didn't have kick, but I think they made this same point to him. You spend a, so much time as a preacher trying to get your words across to the congregation. You should spend a considerable amount of time trying to understand the, the meaning of what you are reading and in the inflection of how you read, you should be spending, you should give just as much attention on, ma- on drawing out the meaning of the word as you read it. Does that make any sense? Since a lot of times we, we were kind of taught just read monotone and a lot of times people read the scripture and it's just monotone read. Um, and you don't have to be theatrical when you read the scripture, but you should in a sense give some inflection as to what the scripture is actually saying. And uh, that's, not, that's a lot harder to do uh, than you might think. But we were challenged to do that in seminary, and I think it's uh, a true, true thing. So the, the reading of the word is valuable. It's not just an addendum. It's not something you just, oh, okay, we're going to read the scripture. It is very important to the worship of God when we read the scripture. And you should give your attention. I know John probably does this more than anybody, has people stand up if they're able. And that, I mean, that's, a lot of people do that, um, but it really is to, to uh, you don't just, you're not just trying to get through the worship service to get to the preaching. It, the, every element in the worship service has its importance in place, and you should give your attention to that. A um, couple comments on the preaching of the word. Uh, oh, yeah, go ahead, Mary. Yes, you can. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And why is that? I'm not disagreeing. I just want to. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah, I'm, I don't know that it's uh, mandated in Scripture uh, that a woman couldn't do that. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, I'll just leave it at that. If you have other thoughts on that, that's good. But that's a very good comment. Okay, the preaching of the word. I do believe it's correct that you as a congregation should expect um, a certain degree of of expertise from your preacher in handling the word of God. It doesn't mean we have to be experts in rhetorical abilities or that we're just spell casting, you know, spell binding to you guys. Um, but I do think that uh, if we're going to put a high priority on preaching, those who preach should study to make themselves approved in order to preach. It just is, and I actually believe that this church, or really any church, values preaching when they want their preachers to be trained, and they want them to have studied the, the whole of Scripture. Um, I think that's a, that's a healthy thing. I'm not uh, stating as wrong 
uh, when churches basically just say, oh, we just want anybody to stand up and preach. Uh, it's not that that's a wrong thing in Scripture. Um, but even in those, uh, in most of the churches that don't require much training for preaching, um, a lot of them will go back and send a preacher to get more training later on because it's just, it is important to be able to uh, be an expert in this. So like, I'll use Howard, he's a doctor. Um, Howard uh, probably uses a relatively narrow amount of his training on a regular basis. But he had to do this vast amount of training in order to do what he does. And sometimes he needs that vast amount of training, but, but you know, you could just say, well, just... Just teach him how to deliver. I mean, you don't even deliver babies anymore. But just use, for example, just as long as he knows how to deliver babies, that's fine. Well, no, he's a doctor. You expect him to know more so that in the difficult situations, he's able to handle those with a certain degree of expertise. And I think that's important in the word of God. Now, that, that being said, preachers are not necessarily to all be Chuck Swindolls or, you know, uh, Alistair Begg or... Tim Keller in, in the way that we deliver. We're not all going to have that set of gifts, and that's not always a bad thing that we're not. But I do think that we should uh, be held to a standard of being able to take the meaning of the text of Scripture and expound it for you. I think that's very important that we be able to do that uh, and try to do it with, with great diligence, even though we all fail and fall short. Um, Not every sermon has to be a gospel sermon. But I think in some sense, every sermon should connect to Christ in some way. Um, Why is that? In some sense, yes. You have to be careful because not some people just make the gospel the they don't really even deal with the text they just kind of run to the gospel and that's it. I think you should deal with the text, but according to Luke twenty four, Jesus taught his disciples uh, that all scriptures, beginning with Moses, it says he he showed his apostles how they pointed to him, and I think that's what we're trying to do. In, in scripture. So you don't want to get off base and, and really people need the gospel. So you're trying to give that to them. So you're looking through that. Um, that's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. So that's, these are just brief, brief things on this. I don't want to spend too much time what about the hearing of the word? Why do they even place in there the hearing of the word, and what do you think they mean by that? Okay, so application. In some sense, the preacher should give you some application, but uh, that's good. Some yielding to the word, yep. I think this is here because it places responsibility not just on the preacher. You're out there, you've got a responsibility to hear the word of God. And that means, as Danny says, yielding. That means trying to apply it to your life, as uh, um, Bill said. It is... You come to worship with a prepared heart to hear God's word. That's what's that's required in worship. You don't just come in thinking, oh, think about, okay. I'm gonna, you should be thinking, oh, I'm getting ready to hear from God today. And you should prepare your heart even before you come into worship uh, to to want to hear the word of God from him. Um, this is true of pastors as well. So I go to presbytery meetings, and usually at a presbytery meeting, we begin with someone preaching a sermon. You know how difficult it is for those who are lifelong preachers to hear the the sermon of a new candidate 
who's just now, because we usually get someone who's a candidate to preach the sermon, not even ordained, to come into that with a teachable attitude of saying, I don't want to just judge this guy's sermon, but I want to learn from God. It takes an attitude to do that, right? But that's what God calls us to do. When the preaching is given, you are called to be a hearer of the word of God. And so uh, it's an exercise of discipline and humility to say, God, you are speaking to me through this person. So it's very important for the hearing of the word of God. Yeah. Yes. Well said. Well said. Um, just jumping down, moving on, the administrating, administration and receiving of the sacraments. Uh, so a part of worship is sacraments. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are to be a part of worship. Um, If there are baptisms, you don't necessarily just have a private baptism somewhere away. You have baptisms in the church of God because it's an element of worship. Uh, Also with uh, communion, it is a part of corporate worship to have communion, which is why we don't have private communion. Uh, uh, we do, and, and we're actually going to talk about this at our next elders meeting, uh, Ken Twing has asked if we might be able to uh, provide communion for his mother, who's homebound and can't be here. But what we would do in a situation like that, we would, we would have worship here, and then we would take, I wouldn't go by myself, I would take at least another elder with me, but maybe some of the rest of the congregation who would want to come can go to their house. We would actually try to give some summary of the preached word that morning, uh, and then we would, we would do communion as a sort of worship service there uh, for that person, not just a, a private mass. So anyway, it's a, this sacraments of baptism and communion are, are um, act, acts of worship. Now, uh, Yeah, I'm not going to go too much into sacraments here right now. Uh, what is not told is how often you should have the Lord's Supper, right? So within our denomination, some people have it weekly, every time they have worship. Some people do it, uh, not too many anymore. In the Scottish tradition, it used to be once a year, and you would have to actually meet with the, the elder and the pastor and get a little token before coming to worship to uh, but we usually do it monthly, and there's, there's arguments on both sides for either doing it weekly or monthly, um, but that's not necessarily mandated. But it is mandated that we have the sacrament for you. It'd be sinful for us to withhold those sacraments for you. Um, like It's like not giving you the preach word, so... All right, I know that I'm moving fast, but let's, uh, yeah, yeah, that's why I don't, I, I want, if there's a question, I want to answer it, but I would, go ahead. No. Uh, so there's, there's what we call saving grace. And you said common grace? Well, common grace is something that's given to both believers and unbelievers. And then saving grace is that which actually works to salvation. So we would say that the, that the preaching and the reading of the word and the sacraments are means of saving grace. It does not mean that every time someone hears the preaching, they're saved. Same thing's true just because you've received the sign, the sacramental sign or participated in communion 
doesn't mean that that gives you saving grace, but they are means of saving grace. Um, now, you might have, I, I clarified, is there a specific question? Um, where the church gets messed up in this is when they think that the means uh, are the grace themselves. Uh, so, if you have a, a light, um, the, the grace that makes that light shine is the electricity, right? But the means by which the grace comes to that light bulb are the wires. The wires in and of themselves do not give the grace. It's always the actual, I'd say the Holy Spirit, is the one who actually gives the grace. And just as with preaching, someone could externally hear the preaching and God not actually work in their heart during, with the Holy Spirit, the same thing can happen with the sacraments. You can externally receive the sacraments, but not actually receive the grace of salvation through those sacraments. But they are still means of that grace. No, no, I think that's fine. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I, when she said if you, if you come to worship, you are giving God the opportunity to work in your heart. I think that's true. Uh, now, of course, we know God's sovereign, and the only reason why you come to worship is because he's already worked in your heart to want to have him work in your heart. So that's, that you can, but it's still putting yourself in the means, right? Like if you purposely separate yourself from the preached word, the hearing of the word, the sacraments. You are purposely taking yourself out of the line of which God wants to work in your life, and that's never a healthy thing. So, not good. Now, God could zap you somewhere out there and bring you back to himself, and he often does that, but that you, you want to use the means of grace on a regular basis. That's what you're trying to do. So, okay, uh, the next line there says church government and discipline. Uh, and I don't want to, again, belabor this, but this is why it is the church who receives new members. And in our situation, it's the leadership of the church. It's the elders. Because if you don't control, whoever controls coming into the church is the one who controls leaving the church. Did you hear that? So if, let's just say, uh, let's see here, uh, let's say Nathan determines, it's up to him to determine when his girls are allowed to partake of communion. Then what if I later on, you know, or the elders see one of his girls as they grow up walking away from the Lord, we don't have the right to take away that in discipline, do we? And only Nathan would have that because he's the one who received the members in. So it's very important that the keys of the kingdom, where does that come from in Scripture? Where do we hear about the keys of the kingdom? What? Jesus gave it to Peter in Matthew 16 and verse 18, or chapter 16 and chapter 18. He says, upon this, church, upon this rock, I will build my church. And he's talking about that the, the authority to bring people in to the church is given to Peter and the apostles uh, because they confess Christ. Now, you can use those keys wrongly, and that's, that's wrong too, but it is up to the elders, a part of, they're looking at this as a, a portion of God ordering and controlling worship. It's up to the elders in our uh, denomination to, to regulate who comes into the fellowship and who can have the sacraments. That's, that's, uh, that's part of the keys of the kingdom. Again, I know I'm flying through all this stuff. This is not a class on ecclesiology, but just so you know, that, I mean, that's, that's why if somebody wants to become a member, they come before the elders and are examined as to their faith in Christ, and then they're received by the elders. There are only three forms of discipline that the church can give. 
They may want to go through the three of them. Everybody should know this if you are a member. What are the three forms of discipline? Withholding communion is the second one. Excommunication is the last one. What's the first one? Just admonition. So it's just, it's basically going to someone and saying, um, you know, uh, usually it's in an open sin that's, that's uh, very severe, not necessarily just, you know, some little slight, but you would talk to that person, um, try to explain to them what you've seen in them that has been sinful, and give them an opportunity to repent. If they repent, everything's fine. If not, then you can take it to the, someone else with you as another witness, and then you can um, uh, do the same thing again, and then you can take it to the church, and then the church follows the same kind of policy. <laughs> they will, would, the elders would talk to a person and exhort them to come to repentance, and then uh, if they choose to not run or repent, then the, the elders have a right to restrain them from taking communion. Um, and then uh, eventually, if they're still hardened in their sin and unrepentant, there can be an excommunication. And those are all uh, aspects of what the elders are called to do. They're not allowed to, to uh, whip or uh, any kind of physical punishment, can't throw you in jail, any of those kind of things. So. Yeah, any member can be confronted. Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. Now, uh, there's a lot that can be said on, on those in, in, in our church. We, we tend to uh, try to drag our feet before any kind of uh, discipline, which is a good thing to give time for repentance. And we only want to uh, bring uh, cases of discipline for open, clear sin and, and try not to uh, um, nitpick in people's lives because we're all still sinners. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Yes. Yes, although, let me just, when there's someone in authority like this, let's say Marcus sees me. Um, the, Matthew 18 speaks about like Marcus uh, would be the one individual coming to the other individual. We keep it as private as possible. But I think when you're dealing with an issue of someone in authority, I don't think it's wrong for Marcus to go get his dad and for him and his dad to come and talk with me. No, it's just, it's just in my understanding, it's just basic. Uh, you just, it's, you can't expect a young member to just, um, you know, have uh, kind of the gumption to confront an older member sometimes, so. No, Matthew 18 really does, you try to keep the circle as small as you can to try to, to, to make the reparation as quick as you can. Because you think of every step of church discipline is like doing a bigger surgery. <laughs> and so there's harder recovery, there's more difficulty. And so keep it as small as you can, private as you can, and then you, then you have to keep moving on. There's a reason why you can't do excommunicate. You can actually hold, withhold communion from someone and it can be a private issue in terms of the, the elders and that person. But you can't excommunicate without it being public. And that's to protect the people, not to protect the person. Because you don't want your elders to just be able to kick people out of the church without giving a clear statement as to why they're being kicked out of the church. That has to be, uh, it protects the congregation from uh, unruly elders. So, that answer your question? Okay. All right. All this is just, the, all this is just to say that worship is important to us. The gathering of God's people. You can't guarantee that everybody in the congregation is saved. But if there's someone who's clearly opposing the truth of the gospel and walking in opposition to Christ, it is important to be able to kick them out of the congregation. That's an important thing. So that's just, it just has to be that way to protect the worship of God. Otherwise, you'll have people say, 
and the church doesn't look anything like it. It's not any different than the world, right? I mean, so you're, there's this, it's like a tension between you can't have an absolutely pure church, we're still sinners, but you also don't want a filthy, stinking, you know, ugly church either, right? And so it's up to the elders uh, to try to monitor that for the sake of God's glory. That's exactly right. So in, in, our, in our, right, this is second commandment. God cares about worship. You don't just worship any way you like. Your life can't be any way you want. It's a, God says, no, these are the people I want to worship. This is how I want to be worshiped. This is the broad perspective of the second commandment uh, on worship. Thank you. Okay, so one last, uh, uh, but more uh, more detailed uh, discussion, and that is on images of Christ. We had some discussion on this, I think. Is that right? But probably not very detailed. If there is a, if there is a, an, an exception to our standards that is most popular, it's this one. This is, the, this is the exception. Um, there are more, way more teaching elders that take exception to the catechism, question 109, um, than any other uh, portion of the catechism. The second most often is the Sabbath. We'll deal with that in the fourth commandment, but this is the second. So question, larger catechism 109. Why don't we have somebody read that for us? Guess to get us started. I'm gonna guess just choose Jim. There you go, Jim. No mic, I guess. That's all right. What are the sins forbidden in the second commandment? Sins forbidden in the second commandment are all the time. Counseling. Commanding. Using and any wise approving. Any religious worship not instituted by God himself, tolerating a false religion, the making any representation of God, of all or of any of the three persons, either inwardly in our mind or outwardly in any kind of image or likeness of any creature whatsoever, all worshiping of it or God in it or by it, the making of any representation of feigned deities and all worship of them or service belonging to them, all superstitious devices, corrupting the worship of God, adding to it or taking from it, whether admitted and taken up of ourselves or received by tradition from others, through under the title of antiquity, custom, devotion, good intent, or any other pretense whatsoever, simony, sacrilege, all neglect, contempt, hindering, and opposing the worship and ordinances which God has appointed. That's a mouthful, right? Don't you love the way they make some things so simple? This is why the Westminster Larger Catechism is not used as much. <laughs> um, okay, what I want to focus on is the, the portion where it says that you're not to make any representations of God or any of the three persons of the Trinity, either inwardly in our mind or outwardly in any kind of image. So you got inwardly and outwardly. Um, and then uh, we have that this, um, so that you have the making of the image, and then you have the... Uh, the, the actual worshiping of the image. So our catechism separates those two and says that both of them are important. So uh, let me try to... Um, the, the exception that is, that is usually stated is that most teaching elders are okay with images of Christ for pedagogical purposes. Images of Christ, 
for pedagogical purposes. Um, so here's the, here's the argumentation for this, and then I just want you guys to kind of work that out. The commandment was given before the incarnation. It's given in the Old Testament. With the coming of Christ, Jesus is the image of God. So in his humanity, people saw him. You know, in the Old Testament, you think God is a spirit. He can't, you can't see him. But in, in, in the incarnation, people see uh, God in human form. So the first generation of Christians were not somehow breaking the second commandment when they, in their mind, had images of Jesus. Does that make sense? You following that? Um, And then, um, if you refuse people the, the ability to do that, in their argument, which I think is a pretty good argument, you are in some sense denying the incarnation. Do you see how that, that works there? That it's, it's a certain denial of the incarnation. Um, so like, you know, I'm talking to my kids and I'm saying, yeah, I, you know, I actually saw Jesus walking by or teaching along, you know, the road. And, and uh, you know, if they said, um, well, daddy, what did it look like? You know, picture, draw that for me. The, the disciples probably would not have said, oh, no, you can't do that. You know, because they actually did see him. Okay, that's the argumentation. And the, the argumentation goes further that because, since the incarnation, you cannot think about God without thinking in some sense about him as a human being. Okay, that's, that's the argumentation for that. Um, before I go to the argumentation against it, what do you guys think of that argumentation? Respond to that. Most of your teaching elders agree with that. I, I won't tell you exactly where I am on this yet, but. Right. So the argument is usually like the Jesus storybook Bible. Okay. So, yes, Danny. Well, they certainly could not have an image in their mind. They couldn't think about Jesus without actually thinking of the image that they saw. So, What do you mean by that? Oh. You, don't, you don't make any distinction between... A theophany in the incarnation? Well, the Old Testament certainly has many theophanies, um, and the temple certainly had um, not necessarily images of God, but there were images in the temple. Um, but, yeah, I, but I still would hold that there, there's a big difference between the incarnation and a theophany. So, yes, Dan.
All right, so one, one second. Now I'm going to give the argumentation against it, okay? So I, just, I gave you the argumentation for. Let me give you the argumentation against. We have no physical description of Christ. So if those disciples thought it important to give the physical description of Jesus, they most certainly could have done that. And they chose not to. So that's, that's an argument from silence, but I think it's pretty weighty. Um, they could have just said, okay, let's draw a picture of him now. We know what he looks like. This is what his hair was like. This is, you know, and they don't do that. Secondly, the Bible gives priority to the character of Jesus rather than the physical features of Jesus. There's no question that that is the case. When you talk about personally knowing Jesus, they're talking about his character, not his features, okay? Uh, thirdly, we are driven to imagine Jesus by the word. Like, you are supposed to have pictures of Jesus Christ uh, in your mind as he is talking with the woman at the well. I mean, you can't read the word without some evoking in your mind of an image of Christ sitting with a woman. So I think that that's, that's uh, I, don't, I don't see any way you can get around that. But for four centuries, the church made no images of Christ. Four centuries. That's a long time. Okay? And... Our present images of Jesus are not constructed by artists who saw Jesus. How would you like to be drawn by someone who never saw you and never saw a picture of you? Oh, here's Melissa Hall. It doesn't look like Melissa Hall. It looks like Mary Dunn. <laughs> okay? Um, G, and the last one is Jesus is no longer on the cross. Jesus is no longer um, uh, just walking along the road to Emmaus. Jesus is currently in his resurrected glory. And the only description that we have of that is the transfiguration, and there is no really earthly description of that. So, any description that you have physically of Christ would basically deal with his human nature and not so much his divine nature. And even in some past, they would put like a halo around his head or light shining out or something like that. But it's so hard to capture that he is in his resurrected divine glory. And we do have some description of that in Revelation, but it's not just this physical description. It really flows into that glorious character kind of description of Christ. And so... um, for all those reasons, I think it's, you know, my personal opinion is uh, I'm not going to do a witch hunt to try to track down someone who is, you know, I do this a lot. You know, Jesus is talking to his disciples, you know, and I'll do something like that. And, and okay, there's Jesus, there's his disciples. Did I make an image of him? Yes. But nobody's going, oh, that, that's Jesus right there. You know, that looks like him, you know. And so I think that... Um, there's a sense where you can draw, even in pedagogical purposes, a way to do this without trying to give the impression this is him, and certainly not using them uh, in worship. So, okay, now, my, can I give you the first statement? That, that's my argumentation, and I think it's the primary argumentation of those who hold to the second commandment as applying to images of Christ. Good. Other reflections on this? Mm-hmm. 
I grew up in a small country Lutheran church, and we had this beautiful stained glass of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. It's beautiful. To this day, I think it's beautiful. So I don't somehow think, I can't worship here because it's there. You know, I'm I'm not that, you know, but you will not find it here in this sanctuary. Um. We try to choose Sunday school materials that, that don't make use of pictures of Jesus on any high level. Um, although I think that's going to be harder and harder because I think most of the, the Sunday school curriculums uh, are following the first option. And that, so therefore, they're going to have Jesus pictured. Uh, I cannot say for certain whether there's a kid's books in our, in our library that doesn't have a picture. There may be some picture. Someone will go, see there, an image in the church. You know? uh, so we're not trying to be on a, a, a hunt. To, to Mm-hmm. Yeah, I never felt like Tara and Michael had a trouble understanding the humanness of Christ because we weren't showing them pictures of him. Um, so I, it's funny because we sit in our examination committee and we're examining people coming in, and it's our committee is like it's divided half and half, you know. And so it's it's almost laughed at if you hold to the second second commandment as uh, the catechism says, but um, but I'll just usually say but. That's what I believe. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, but it, again, it is, uh, I think the arguments at the beginning for using Christ for pedagogical purposes are ones that we should take into consideration. We do want to make sure that we are pr- promoting Christ's eminence and not just his transcendence. We want to make sure that we're making him real and accessible, particularly to kids, so that they can believe that God would, is real and that he would stoop down to listen to their prayers. And we want to do that kind of thing. So it's not, uh, I, it's just a good thing for us to, to have some disagreements, right? The catechism is not the word of God. And the Bible doesn't give us an explicit command on this. It takes some thinking through and so we do allow for those in our own denomination to have differing opinions where we all agree on is it shouldn't be used as an aid to worship. That's what we agree on. So. Oh, yeah. And, and, okay, Ken, I know that you're strong. Ken might actually have the opinion that, that anybody that holds to the pedagogical purpose should be not a part of our denomination. I mean, <laughs> but, but just know that in our denomination, that has not been deemed the central point. And so, um, and, and so uh, you'll just see this within the PCA, the people in different places, and don't be like, <gasps> you know, so. <laughs> uh, yeah, Jesus film. Uh, uh, was Mel Gibson's movie The Passion of Christ uh, and uh, I remember um, trying to walk a nice little ridge line because I personally didn't go see The Passion of the Christ uh, but many people in our church did and were blessed by it um, I, I, I do take issue with thinking that The Passion of the Christ will somehow mandate uh, ongoing zeal for the Lord I don't think it will do something that the regular preaching of the word of God is designed to do. That's, that's what keeps us in the faith, not necessarily going to see a movie. You know? So I didn't condemn people for going to go see it. Uh, I just personally didn't really see the need to, and people would say, what, you haven't seen that yet? You really should see that. And, um, okay, yeah, that's, I mean, huh? <laughs> so, yeah, Howard. Yes. I 
That's a great question. Uh, Like what scripture does it reference? That's a good question. What's the the theological... um, does, Does it give a... It doesn't give a scripture for that, Howard? Number seven... Um, okay, so I'll read what it says, uh, the verses that they give. Um, Deuteronomy 4, Therefore watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, likeness, male or female. And and then in verse 19, Beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and moon and the stars and the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. And then he goes on, um, Acts 17, 29, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art of, and imagination of man. So I think the imagination is a part of that, that you, you, before you can actually craft something, you have to think of that in your mind, what you're going to craft. Um, and then that in Romans 1, is the other verse they give, where they are exchanging the glory of the immortal God uh, for images resembling mortal man. And so I think that that, again, has to begin first in the mind and then move on to the the uh, um, the actual crafting of it and then the worshiping of it. So, um, I w- I agree with you, Howard. That that we often like if I think of the woman at the well, there's some image that I have in my mind, and I that's what I said that the scripture I think wants us to evoke that that you can't you can't read the words of scripture without having some evoking of that right when Jesus says he spit and he takes the dirt, and he puts it, I mean, you're thinking physical actions when you're doing that, so um, usually uh, teaching elders are not opposed to thinking about some kind of mental image of Christ, they just say that if, if, you, um, if you can have some mental image of Christ, then you you ought to be able to make, a, for pedagogical reasons, an actual written image of Christ. That's usually the connection that they make. And I think that there's something to that. I, I would, though, argue that um, when I think of the woman at the well and Jesus sitting and talking to her, I do have an image of Christ being there as a human, as a person, even as a man of middle age. But I don't have, I, I, my mind doesn't really, it's not drawn to the, to the, the image of um, the, um, in our church of him praying in Gethsemane. It's like it's not, those physical features are not. And I, I do tend to discourage my mind from running down that road too much. Does that make sense? So I, I, there's, there's an inward sense of if I'm thinking of Jesus on the cross, and that's who he is, then I just, okay, that's there, but I, I don't emphasize that. I just... I just tell myself, okay, that's an image, but that's not really the Christ uh, that is true. Um, I think the confession or the catechism makes a good, it's very good distinction to say that you should be concerned with the thoughts in your mind, because I do think that's where it starts. Um, there's not a lot of command, though, don't have any image in your mind. There's just, I mean, I read the ones that they gave, and they're just, they're kind of the imaginations and stuff. So, again, I'm not the thought police, right? But I would, I would think it's the less that you have, you're exposed to physical images of Christ, the less it's going to be an issue in your mind. And the more that we have these all over the place, the more your mind's going to have a much more concrete description of him. And so, you know, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's, I think the commandment has to deal something with the mind. But again, you're getting into a lot of, of gray area when you're just talking about images in the mind, so...
Right. And, and, but see, I will say that I, I've actually seen, um, I saw it on video, but uh, Robin's sister was at, maybe you were at this too, where, where there's, um, uh, was done in a big conference kind of setting, um, kind of, you know, those guys that'll paint and you don't really know what it is, and, you're, and there's like a worshipful song going on, and, and as you're worshiping, you're, you're seeing this person painting, you're not really sure what's going on, and at the very end, boom, it's an image of Christ right there. And so I, I'm very uncomfortable with that. Yeah. So again, you, you do. The image of your mind is on a whole other level. The making of the image is more concrete, and then the worshiping of the image. I make those distinctions. Um, but it, here's, the, here's the thing, and I'll close with this. God gives us a very clear reason for this, doesn't he, in the commandment. What does it say? It's what, question 110. He says, his fervent zeal for his own worship and his revengeful indignation against all false worship. So he, um, what I usually, when I'm talking to candidates coming through, I usually say, okay, fine, your position has some validity to it, but just remember, you've still got to teach people that to worship an image is detestable to God. And he says that he is a jealous God, and he does not want to be worshipped. He even says that that he'll bring wrath to the second and third generation. It's a terrible thing. So don't take it lightly. It's not like, ah, God will be okay with this. It it is a very serious thing um, as we think about this. And so I do think that in our culture, it's less and less of just people just don't even think about it. Go ahead, Dan. Amen. You are the living image of God. Okay, so um, we'll end with this. The thousandth generation and and judgment on the second and third generation is very difficult. Uh, Basically, your sins do influence and affect those who come after you. So that's, I think that's the, the second, third generation. To the thousandth generation is that... I, that's like endless. That's the mercy of God. So this, this commandment says, be careful, God is very serious about this. But then he finishes with the grace of God that is found only in Jesus Christ. I think to a thousandth generation is eternally. You know, we haven't got to the thousandth generation in history yet. It's throughout all history, God works mercifully to redeem people. And so even idolaters, he redeems. And so I think that there's a, if the weightiness, yes, God's serious about this commandment, but also remember God's mercy. He is merciful. Um, we've had Catholics that have come to our church. My first job is not to go in and kind of cleanse the house of all idols. It's to teach them Christ and the mercy of God in Christ. And then as the instructions come along, they, they hopefully will become less and less uh, important to them and they'll make that decision even to get rid of those. So um, anyway, Father, thank you so much for this time, and thank you for the discussion. Thank you for the second commandment. It's, there's a lot of difficulties, and yet it is uh, a guide to us. It is your authoritative statement of what you want from us, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.